Hello, Gut Check Project fans and fans of KBMD Health. This is Eric Rieger, your host. Um, also with Dr. Ken Brown, we have a special episode. This is COVID Files Installment 2.5. Dr. Brown hosts Dr. Stu Ackerman, also a board-certified gastroenterologist, as we continue to address the issues of the pandemic surrounding the coronavirus. Um, this episode is going to be brought to you by Unrefined Bakery, unrefinedbakery.com, unrefinedbakery.com. Have healthy, keto, gluten-free, and other foods sent directly to your house. Practice social distancing and use code GUTCHECK for 20% off of your very first order. That is Unrefined Bakery. If you've ever wanted foods such as delicious bread, but you're afraid of having it because of a fear of gluten, fear no more. UnrefinedBakery.com has incredible food that just happens to also be healthy for you. And of course, Atron Teal. Today's episode is always, almost always sponsored by Atron Teal. LoveMyTummy.com forward slash KBMD. LoveMyTummy.com forward slash KBMD. And I'm be quick here. If you need CBD, go to KBMDHealth.com. If you need any CBD used in a clinic, approved by a physician, of course, your very own Dr. Ken Brown, kbmdhealth.com. Use code GCP to save 20%. GCP stands for Gut Check Project, save 20%. Okay, today's show is going to be quite special. It is just Dr. Ken Brown hosting Dr. Stu Ackerman. Let's waste no more time. Enjoy it, and uh, we will keep these COVID file installations moving forward. Thank you. Be safe. All right, welcome to the Gut Check Project. We're going to call this episode COVID Two and a Half. It's going to be a shorter form. And in lieu of my regular host, I have asked my gastroenterology partner, Dr. Stuart Ackerman, to join us because what we wanted to do is go over two recent journal pre-proofs, one of them being accepted in the Journal of Gastroenterology and the other one with the American College of Gastroenterology, both actually augment each other, and I think it's a great opportunity to look at something that a lot of people may not realize. Uh, Dr. Ackerman, thank you so much for joining me on this lovely Sunday morning, March 29th, 2020. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Brown. And uh, as you can see, we're both in our respective social isolation bunkers uh, while we have a uh, conversation over the internet to talk about these two interesting articles. You know, the data coming out of China is uh, fast and Fast and loose. It just uh, more information comes out every day, and thankfully, people are aggregating it and analyzing it so that we can get a better plan of attack against this viral pandemic. Exactly. Right now, to date, six hundred eighty-three thousand six hundred forty-one people have uh, COVID nineteen. Thirty-two thousand one hundred forty-four have died worldwide. Unfortunately, the U.S.'s numbers continue to go up. We're at one hundred twenty-three thousand eight hundred twenty-eight. Two thousand two hundred twenty-nine people have died from COVID nineteen. So I really admire these scientists around the world. It is like drinking from a fire hydrant at times when you go down these rabbit holes. But fortunately, these scientists put together data in two journals that you and I know is very hard to get into, uh, very highly respected, the American Gastroenterology Association Journal and the American College of Gastroenterology. So I'm going to... And I I just want to point out, you know, in case people are, are starting to feel like maybe things are turning here in the United States, 
you know, we're still very much in the thick of it. And this is uh, applicable every single day all over because, you know, according to our current analysis, cases are getting diagnosed and doubling at a rate every two days. We're very much still in the thick of this uh, increase in the curve. 100%. And one thing that we're going to be discussing today is we may be missing a lot of these people and we may be missing a very important route of how we could be infecting each other. So let's just jump right into this because the science is, well, for you and I, it's pretty interesting because it really involves us. If you're wondering why two gastroenterologists are talking about a virus, neither one of us are virologists or infectious disease doctors who are most of the people out there talking. Well, now we got to play a big role in this. So let's talk about the first article. The title is COVID-19 Gastrointestinal Manifestation and Potential Fecal Oral Transmission. This article is out of Shanghai. Dr. Ackerman, I will um, just throw it to you real quick. That Can you give us an overview of this article? Yes. So this article is, uh, like you said, uh, coming out of Shanghai, it talks about uh, patients that were tested for COVID-19 and found to be positive, and that even after discharge, uh, so in other words, they did well, they thankfully recovered, uh, and this is not a, you know, similar to what's happening in the U.S., this is not someone who, you know, was sick for a day or two. They may have been uh, ill, possibly ventilated uh, in the hospital for weeks on end, discharged, and still displaying evidence of virus on stool specimens that were uh, taken to culture. Absolutely, because right now the way that uh, most people, and certainly at the time when China was doing this, everybody to try and detect SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, you're doing throat swabs. And what they're looking for is the viral load right there. And I will say that on a prior episode, we discussed how this is 1,000 times more uh, contagious than the SARS 2003 outbreak, and they're actually showing much higher viral loads in the back of the throat. So it makes sense that that's where we're going. But now there's evidence that non-respiratory routes, like you're talking about, include the digestive system. Now, one of the theories behind that is, is that the same receptor that the virus binds to, called the H2 receptor, is heavily concentrated in the gastrointestinal tract and also the lungs. And so once the virus comes in, it sees this receptor, it gets integrated into the cell, and then once it's there, it hijacks the cell, and that's how it replicates. So the implication that the gut is involved is huge. So what's really, I, I think, fascinating is that these guys figured this out and figured out a test to actually look for it in the stool. That's right. And there are two, uh, there are two laboratories in China that are currently successfully isolating it from the stool using uh, PCR techniques. And hopefully we'll be able to commercialize that in the near future to have it available for wider distribution. You know, it's a big deal to be able to isolate the live virus because evidence of virus is not the same as viral activity or active infection. And what they found in this study is that they have essentially proof of live virus. And if the live virus is shedding, that means that the patients can still be contagious, can still give it to other people and act as vectors. 100%. In fact, there's, we're probably missing a lot of people because this article goes on to say that this appears to show this fecal oral route. The next article goes way deeper into it, and that's where we get into the nuts and bolts. They did reference in 2003, remember that this virus is very similar in structure to the SARS 2003 virus. 
that is the coronavirus. So when they say novel coronavirus, it's, it causes a different type of infection. But a lot of the data, they can look back and go, oh, SARS-2003 did this. Um, what they did show is that some of those people had liver damage. And on liver biopsies back then, they showed hepatitis. And they were questioning whether it was due to drugs or whether it was actually due to the virus. And the next article we, the next article we get into really goes a little bit more into that. These guys even implied that if it binds to the ACE2 receptor, then there's ACE2 receptors in the GI tract, but also in the liver, which is something that you're very familiar with, and even the bile ducts or cholangiocytes. Can you explain to everybody what that aspect means in that part of the gastrointestinal system? Yeah, absolutely. So the liver is uh, an organ that we have. It sits in the right side of our body and it helps uh, kind of like a filtration system. And there are many, many different injuries that can happen to the liver. I think the most common ones we think about are viral illnesses like hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Uh, we talk about fatty liver disease a lot lately. And then probably the most common is alcoholic liver injury, right? If you drink either enough or enough over time, uh, you can start damaging those cells. But the liver has different kinds of cells. There are the liver, liver tissue cells themselves, which are called hepatocytes. And then there's an intricate uh, bile system uh, called the bile ducts, kind of like a tree where all the branches are sitting in the liver and they drain down to the trunk. And that trunk exits out of the liver, goes through your pancreas, and then empties into the small intestine. So when we talk about digestion and bile flow, we're talking about bile, which originates in the liver. And the cells that line that are called cholangiocytes. And in reference to this article, they found that ACE2 expression is significant in cholangiocytes in about 60% of cells. And hepatocytes, maybe a little bit less, uh, only about 3%. So to be more specific, when we're talking about the potential for liver injury, uh, yes, liver injury in general, but in specific, a lot of bile duct injury, also called cholangiopathy or cholangitis. So I want to clarify that Dr. Ackerman, this is actually his subspecialty. He is trained um, extra for one particular thing, which is to do this invasive procedure called an ERCP, which is a life-saving procedure for some people, where he actually goes into this bile duct and can remove stones and things like that. While you were talking, I was thinking, wow, if it's upregulated there, we're gastroenterologists, we may be more exposed than we actually thought. You may be more exposed than me now after yeah. hearing that. Yeah, and unfortunately, doing this, there's this not is much the first... uh, PPE that we can use for things like that. So we have to be extra vigilant but to make sure that we're not being exposed, uh, or at least the least amount possible, while we try to help people with emergencies. I know. As soon as you said that, I was thinking, oh my goodness, how many people can come in with elevated liver test, etiology unclear, is it COVID? And we're going to get into the next article, which really gets you thinking about how many people may be, may be missing. So just to summarize, this first article was really just showing kind of the basis that, look, there is a potential way that the virus can get into the gastrointestinal tract. The next article, which um, in my opinion is a little, goes into some really cool data, about different things. And then this is where after that, I want to expand on some different ideas about where we think this is heading on a gastrointestinal standpoint. What are the implications of all this? This one has been accepted. It's a preprint. It's been accepted into the what we call the Red Journal, which is the American College of Gastroenterology. The title is Clinical Characteristics of COVID-19 Patients 
with digestive symptoms in Hubei, China, a multi-center study. So long-winded title, basically these guys, and I really admire them for doing this, they just keep going back, looking at the data. The same group had published something earlier in the month. I mean, in one month to come out with two different articles is pretty amazing. This is what they're doing is they're looking at an aggregate of patients and they looked at 204 patients with COVID-19. And of course, most of them presented with fever and the usual things, but then they started going, wait a minute. Now let's go back and start asking questions. Let's go back and look at their charts. So this is sort of a chart analysis. This one I think is a little bit more interesting. Why don't you give just a quick overview of your take on this article, Dr. Ackerman? Yeah, so I agree. This, uh, this was a little more nitty gritty and uh, looked at actual uh, patient data uh, analysis and provided a lot more information. So in this study, they looked at 204 patients. The average age of the patient was 53, which I think is a really important piece of information because we keep talking about how patients over 60, over 70 are high risk patients, but you know, it, an infection sometimes doesn't know age. And most patients, uh, almost, almost all, presented initially, uh, or at least presented for their COVID diagnosis, I would say, with respiratory symptoms. But when they looked at their overall symptoms, not just focusing on their cough and shortness of breath and, and things along the respiratory side, they found that uh, 50% of the patients had digestive symptoms as well. Stop right there. Say that one more time. Yeah. So in addition to the respiratory symptoms, nearly uh, more than one in two patients had some sort of digestive issue as well that they were noticing with the onset of their symptoms. And we will, we're going to get into those digestive symptoms, but I thought something very interesting that when they looked back, 78.6, so almost 80% of the people had anorexia, meaning they were not hungry. And there's a relevance to this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piece it together later. But yeah, you're doing a great job, and it didn't mean to interrupt there. <laughs> no worries. So uh, yeah, like you said, you know, almost it was, uh, 78% of patients had some form of a lack of appetite or anorexia. Uh, a third of patients had diarrhea, and uh, several of them also had abdominal pain and vomiting. You know, things we don't necessarily associate with a respiratory illness like, uh, like a pneumonia or a bronchitis. 100%. I, I do want to point out that the diarrhea, this is what's really interesting because, I mean, this is something you and I deal with every single day. People come in and they, this is, this is our bread and butter. What I was shocked on this article is that the diarrhea was not that severe. And it was actually three loose stools a day on, uh, but as the disease got worse, the diarrhea got worse. So I would not even think, I'm not, as a ER doctor, ICU doctor, I wouldn't be going, oh, do you have diarrhea? And somebody's like, listen, I'm feeling pretty bad here. Yeah, I guess I got three loose stools a day. How right. long has that been going on? I don't know, two weeks? Now think about that. This is what I'm implying, that maybe that because the other really interesting thing about this study that I found incredible was all the people with gastrointestinal symptoms, or the majority, presented after having symptoms for 8.1 days, as opposed to the people that just presented with respiratory symptoms that presented earlier, which means these people were out in the community longer before they came in. So is it plausible that the gastrointestinal symptoms were there and they were ignoring them, and then it became pulmonary, which then brought them into the hospital? Right. They make that comment to that effect, and it seems that there was a delay in diagnosis 
in the patients who had gastrointestinal symptoms. And, you know, you can make the argument that it might be like you said, right? Someone called and said, hey, you know, I've got this vague abdominal discomfort. I'm not really that hungry. My bowel habits are starting to change. I'm getting a little bit of looser stool. And, you know, someone might say, you know, we've got other things going on, you know, trust them emodium for a couple of days, take it easy, you know, give me a call back if you're not feeling well. And then two, three days later, now all of a sudden you got the pulmonary symptoms and, you know, everyone is on top of that getting tested and, you know, seeing who needs isolation, who needs to be admitted and treated. But the, the one of the wake up calls from this article is maybe we have to start paying attention. Maybe those patients that call and they're having uh, new onset symptoms, you know, not someone who has maybe chronic symptoms that get exacerbated, but someone who hasn't been having any kind of abdominal discomfort or has bowel regularity and all of a sudden they're off. You know, do those people have to be in a heightened state of awareness and say to that, well, they don't necessarily have to run to a hospital, but maybe you say to them, you know what, I need to follow up with you in a day or two because I need to know if those symptoms are evolving and if we have to take this, you know, in a different in a different route. So can you imagine that the first article that we discussed, we talked about companies developing a rapid assay to see if there's viral shedding in the stool. So now we're going to, I mean, mark my words, once this becomes easy, this will be the norm for us. Just as like when somebody has significant diarrhea, we do our C. diff testing, we do our stool culture, we do fecal leukocytes, lactoferrin, calprotectin, all these things that we do as specialists, we're going to end up looking for uh, SARS-CoV-2 coming out in the stool with this if we can develop a rapid test. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the possibilities are—I don't want to say endless, but but there's there's many. You know, uh, Dr. Brown and I uh, utilize the services of a uh, a large pathology lab in the East Coast that has currently had to close down production of their stool tests uh, until we figure out what's going on in COVID because of these two studies that are showing the potential for spread in the fecal oral route because. They don't know if all the samples that they're processing might have COVID in them. But imagine if there was rapid testing and they can add that to their one-day turnaround test for acute bacterial and viral uh, infections. It, it could be a game changer. Yeah, and I, I actually admire them um, for it, taking the aggressive route of stopping business because there is the potential that they're exposing their employees to this. And then, of course, part of me is just like, no, you're the one person that needs to keep going right. to try and help us figure this out. But we're all learning as we go here. So now, this is also something in this study when they looked back. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about how the people that, that had gastrointestinal symptoms tended to have more severe disease. Those that had liver issues needed more meds and antimicrobials and things like that, showing that once it somehow affects the liver, now whether it's the drugs or whether it's the virus attaching, the one thing I'm a little bit disappointed in this study is that they did not list what the alkaline phosphatase was. And just explain that because in the first part of this, we talked about the cholangiocytes. Right. So, you know, this is, this is how it works in the medical field. You know, when you publish you know, you have uh, a lot of a lot of effort, a lot of sort of sweat and tears that go into analyzing and publishing your data, and then everyone kind of gets to sit around and and then reanalyze it and ask all the questions. And Gee, it's almost like a lawyer looking at a medical file, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of similar. So you know, we have the ability to look at both of these studies to get all that data together, and then look at it and analyze it. And now that we have the data from the first study, which 
you know, tells us how this preferential expression of ACE2 in the cholangiocytes in the bile ducts, it would be more interesting for us to know, okay, well, do the signs and symptoms, meaning the laboratory values of cholangiopathy and inflammation and irritation of the bile duct, do they go up in preference? So when you look at, we talk about this a lot and patients here are saying, oh, I just need you to go get your liver test done. What does that really mean? What that means is there's a panel that pretty much every lab in the United States does for us that looks at several different markers. And some of those markers reflect the liver tissue itself, the hepatocytes. Some of those markers more reflect the bile ducts or the cholangiocytes. And in this study, they really focused more on the hepatocyte markers than the cholangiocyte markers. And that might be an opportunity for us going forward to look back at these patients who are COVID positive, pull their liver tests, and in particular, look at this alkaline phosphatase and bilirubin levels, which are more reflective of the cholangiopathy and see, does it go up? Is there a specific value? Does it go up two times upper limb normal, four times, five times? Is there uh, a correlation that we can make with the severity of the disease? Hmm. Okay. Quick side rabbit hole here. This is what happens when you, you do a podcast with somebody with ADD. You just got me thinking about something. So a lot of the people that are dying in the ICU, they're dying of multi-organ failure and sepsis. Obviously, pneumonia, we've been blaming the pneumonia. What if there could be a component of some cholangitis, for instance, causing this? Cholangitis is the infection that can happen in the bile ducts where it, it can't get out, where basically the bile can't get out. Now, I just thought about something wild. And this is, this is your, I'm challenging you to do this as. On the as, fly. On the fly. Um, <laughs> could you imagine? So what Dr. Ackerman does is he gets into the bile duct and frequently he places plastic stents or uh, stents to open things up. They, I just got an article which showed, so, you know, my world is this molecule of polyphenols. That's where I do a lot of research and that's where we see. We now realize that these polyphenols have antiviral activity, they have antimicrobial activity. I just was sent a pre-proof on possibly making polyphenol masks and polyphenol disinfecting cloths because it's that effective. In fact, we're talking about a rapid test on last, on COVID-2 show, there's a German company ha that actually is doing an assay, a rapid assay to do a filtration, what's called an agglutination test, where they put the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and then they put it in with quercetin and luteolin, which are polyphenols, and then they tag those, and if it clumps, they know that that's doing it. That's how strongly it binds. So just thinking like that, coating stents with possibly hydroxychloroquine, possibly polyphenols, possibly other anti-things, that could be really interesting, because if the concentration of virus is in the bile duct, you may end up having something to directly combat the virus. Right. It's, it's almost akin to placing radiation beads for, for local tumors where right? instead of treating the entire body, you focus your efforts on the, the one area that's problematic and, and just try to focus on it instead. You know, kind of like just a localized therapy. And sometimes that works better than the systemic therapy. I, I'm really proud of you as a, as a clinician to not tell me to stop recording and get up and go, I'm going to go work on this right now. This is going to be my thing. <laughs> well, hopefully enough people see this and uh, enough bright minds are uh, getting uh, tasked to it right away. I know. That just, it just hit me. Coating a stent with an antiviral in 
Because one thing that we're going to learn about this, these numbers are, are there, but in, until we come up with a true vaccine, which is not going to happen for quite a while, yeah, unfortunately. Um, these other treatments are really good. This is not going to be a blizzard and then we're done. I feel like this is going to be seasons. It's going to come and do this. It, how effective it is. So maybe starting to think about something like that is really cool. That was quick side note. So Yeah, but you know what? It's relevant, right? Because the reality is right now, we're focusing on isolating the individuals and then essentially treating them with supportive therapy, right? If you can't breathe and we have to put you on a ventilator, that helps you breathe to give you time to fight the virus, right? I mean, we, there's a lot of talk about uh, you know, Plaquenil and chloramphenicol and, and then these you know, other azithromycin and all these drug yeah. combinations that may or may not have benefit. And you know, the reason is simple. We don't have a treatment currently, which is true of many viruses, right? Many viruses, there are some that we have antivirals for and they have specific actions against that virus like HIV and hepatitis B and hepatitis C. But we don't have direct therapies right now. We're really uh, you know, sort of playing defense rather than offense. And if we can figure out a way to you know, figure out which individuals would benefit from specific therapies and then have those targeted therapies available, it could change the entire landscape of the disease. Oh, it, it could totally. Like if we realized that, I mean, we could do this in our hospital where we're at, we're kind of a funnel hospital. We get a lot of the people or not a lot, but um, if we could look at those charts and say somebody has presented with a fever and cough, they, now imagine the flow of this. Um, okay, so somebody comes in and says, I have a fever and a cough. I'm not feeling well. I've got myalgias. Okay, let's do a SARS test, throat swab. Next thing is, do you recall not wanting to eat? We're going to get into that in a second. Do you recall having a change in your ability to smell? Have you had any change in your bowel habits? Then it becomes test the stool. While they get admitted, alkaline phosphatase is up. And then it's like, Dr. Ackerman, we need you to get in there. We believe this person's going to have a worse outcome because it is now in the liver. It is in the cholangiocytes. We believe, we know that they have COVID-19. Your role could be a, to place something, which is really cool. Yeah, and it's interesting you brought that up about the uh, sense of smell or anosmia. Uh, actually, it was my sister-in-law, Dr. Rachel Kay, over in Rutgers University, who started noticing that about some of the COVID patients and just relentlessly looked into this and found out that that is a significant symptom that is a common thread across all these COVID patients. Absolutely. And so when I saw the anorexia and the first article published at the very at the end of February, where they were discussing gastroenterologist perspective on COVID. I don't know if you remember that. It was it was with our Neil Brennan and a few of other mm -hmm. other of our you know well known academics. That was published in uh, GIE. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They were talking. Well, GI issues are not a big deal, and they threw out the anorexia, which now I'm throwing it back in because I see people with a disease called dysgeusia, which is change in taste, and we frequently get people that come in and go you know, I'm just not smelling right. And we check their vitamin levels and all this other stuff. So I believe that that is a gastrointestinal symptom. It is an ENT symptom as well. So I, when you look at that, I think the sense of smell, and that has become kind of sensationalized right now in the news. For some reason, people find that fascinating to write about, but that's impressive that your sister-in-law was paying attention to that, which is exactly why we should be paying, our field should be paying attention to the 
mild diarrhea type thing, but we should be really paying attention to the anorexia anosmia, which is what that's called, which is lack of sense of smell. Yeah. And, you know, that might be a method for us to uh, triage patients, right? Based on their symptoms, because like you said, we see diarrhea all the time. This is, this is what we do, right? If you have diarrhea, you talk to a gastroenterologist. So how do we, as sort of the gatekeepers, figure out, you know, who we can just say, you know what, just stay home. It's totally okay. And who are the, and you can see my, my daughter in the background here. This is, uh, this is what happens when you uh, do it in the, uh, in the home office rather than doing it in the studio. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, this is how we have to figure out. I'm, maybe. Well, this is funny because I'm, you know, we're all watching a lot of news. And it's just it's, a lot of people are recording from home and stuff like that. And just out of nowhere, a cat will jump on somebody's lap. And they'll be like, oh, look at that. Live shot. Hey, just, <laughs> totally. just play it off. Yeah, um, you got it. But uh, you know, maybe we need to have a little mental checklist, right? If a patient comes to you and says, you know what? I, I started having some diarrhea the last few days. I'm a little worried. I've learned about uh, some of these studies. You know, we've been talking about it in the press. Do you think that I have COVID? You can say to them, well, okay, well, what are your other symptoms? Do you have any kind of change in your appetite? Do you have a change in your smell? Have you had any abdominal discomfort, nausea and vomiting? And if you've got kind of enough of those things stacking up, you know, we don't have enough resources right now to go tell them to go get COVID testing, right? We can't send every single patient that has these symptoms. So how are we going to figure that out? Maybe we check liver tests, right? Maybe we send that patient and go get a pretty simple, easy blood test. And if their liver tests are abnormal along with it, Maybe that index of suspicion now goes higher. Maybe we say to them, you know what? Maybe we're catching this before you get your respiratory symptoms. Let's get you swabbed. Yeah, swabbed or a fecal test. We can do this. Um, I want to talk. I want to finish up this article and then I want to talk about a few other things because this is an ever expanding deal. I have actually spent all week, I did three shows this past week with doctors, with specialists, and I've been reading. I'm just, Nausea. Well, I'm 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 not nauseous because I don't want to sit there. Yeah, and- <laughs> we don't have to worry about putting you through the algorithm right now. Yeah, we don't want to do that. But all right. So I thought well, this is very interesting. Um, some interesting thoughts is what I'm going to call it. Most people in this study could not recall a clear exposure. So right. it's not like oh I was in and this is a Chinese study and so it's not like I was in Wuhan. My brother came back from Wuhan because I got I have other things that we'll talk about that. Um, average time to the hospital was 8.1 days. So it was beginning of symptoms that they could track back. So they were asking the gastrointestinal symptoms, 8.1 days. Imagine, I'd love to sit with your sister-in-law and say, what if the anosmia, the sense of smell starts going away before that? Different theories to that. Um, Ear, nose, and throat doctors have been showing that that happened in SARS-2003. I just got an article here sent to me this morning uh, that shows that it could be related to the microbiome. And we'll get into that next, but there, it appears that this virus could have a, a partner in crime called a Prevotella bacteria, which may be causing a severe pneumonia. Separate, very detailed thing to talk about. Here's something else that I was surprised about this. Everybody's like, well, people are dying, but you know, China didn't know what to do. Did you see that 90% of these people received antiviral therapy? Yeah. China was all over it, man. They were trying everything. 
Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, their pandemic response, you know, after getting caught a little bit flat-footed in 2003 uh, was nothing short of amazing. Yeah. Right. I mean, they shut borders, they, they shut down cities as quickly as they could. And you know what? I mean, that's why that they're finally falling on the other side of the curve. Yeah. And they had, you know, 7.8% of these people went to the ICU with a death rate of 17%, which is much better than what we initially saw, where it was like 87% of people that went on a vent died. But I, I don't know if, if we're as aggressive to throw drugs at people as possibly they were. I don't know if we have our hands tied here by the FDA. I don't know if our physicians are just trained in a different way where it's like, that's not standard of care. Right. Some might just be culture, right? We're, yeah. we're more focused on diagnostics to sort of say, rather than throw everything in the kitchen sink, let's figure out what makes sense, right? I mean, especially as we get into this era of antibiotic stewardship, where we're worried that a lot of our you know older generation drugs are losing their efficacy because we've used them too frequently and there's resistance that's built up. Uh, I think we've uh, all sort of gotten on that train where we want to make sure that we're not just using it to use it, right? And you get this a lot when you see the primary care doctor and you've got a cough and you say to them, oh, I, I just need an antibiotic. And they say, well, you know, 90% of these are viral and the antibiotic's not going to do anything. So, you know, let's wait and see how it goes. And sometimes that's frustrating as a patient, but, you know, by not taking that antibiotic, you're kind of doing your, your public health uh, initiative well, on your own that you haven't created more resistance. Even if it's not a resistance thing, every time you take an antibiotic, you're just disrupting your own microbiome. And you, you need that microbiome to keep you healthy. It keeps your immune system healthy. Yeah. Um, you did mention flattening the curve. The average hospital stay was 17 days. So we frequently talk about this. Everybody's like flattening the curve, flattening the curve. What that means is that's an epidemiologic term called R naught, R little zero. And that means that at least, um, I have not looked at it in the last week, but at least a week ago, the R naught in the United States was one person gets infected, can infect three others. Yeah. That's what the R naught means. And yeah, the reason why- five to three, I think is the yeah. current uh, numbers. And then with a hospital stay of 17 days, when I listened to um, Peter Adia's podcast where he had an infectious disease doctor from New York on there, they did the math on when we will run out of beds. And that's the scary thing. Because if you need some sort of respiratory support, if you need some sort of IV treatment, there will be no beds to do that. That's why we all have to do our part and have remote podcasts here where we have special guests in the background. So Yeah, and I, and I, I think anyone who's been paying attention to the news is uh, not immune to what's going on around the country. I mean, you might not live in New York, but you're, you're going to be well aware of what's happening. I mean, there are hospitals that have run out of space in the morgue and they have to set up external refrigeration sites in their yes. parking lots. I mean, it, it's, this, is, this is real, right? And we have to do what we can to try to flatten that curve, right? Both on the healthcare provider side to figure out, you know, who needs help quickly? How do we isolate them? How do we prevent the spread? And from, from everyone else too, right? I mean, we talk about staying at home and avoiding spread and it goes to exactly what you just said. If you have the virus and you might have it for two, three, four weeks, there's some data to say that there could be an incubation period uh, longer than we thought, right? We keep talking about two weeks and, and self-quarantine for two weeks, but there's some data that's come out that shows that it might be as long as 28 days. So you might be completely fine, feel great, but you're shedding that virus and you walk around and you go to the grocery store and you come in contact with 15 people, right? Doing the math, 
those 15 people now can infect another, another 45 and those 45 and so on and so forth. And, you know, sometimes people, it's hard to see if someone's not ill, right? It's hard to internalize that, that that so, could be happening. So let's, let's talk about that analogy that you just said about going to the supermarket. Now, in the first article, we discussed a fecal oral route and everybody's like, well, I'm not exactly at risk. Well, here's, here's how you're at risk. The virus is um, if you're shedding, shedding it in your stool and you use the restroom and you don't effectively clean your hands, then anything you touch may pass it. And I just thought about going to the supermarket and picking up the, the grapefruit or whatever, looking at it, holding it, putting it back, getting a different one. Right. That could be a transmissible thing. Right. That's exactly it. Right. Most people, and I don't know the numbers on this, but I mean, you just look around what happens, what you, what you yourself do, right. You might look at a box and try to read the ingredients and you're like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't what I want right now. You put it back on the shelf. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times when you say fecal oral, people think well, I don't have stool in my hands. It's not an yeah. issue. That's not what we're saying. Right. Effective hand washing, which is 20 seconds getting between the fingers, getting under the fingernails, using hot water, you might be in a rush. You might not do it. Maybe you don't know that you need 20 seconds. So you've got these little microscopic particles that are on your hands that are now touching the doorknob, touching the handles, touching the inside of your car when you go and, you know, you could just, who knows where it's going. Speaking of who knows, why in the world did everybody run out and get all the toilet paper? I'm still confused by that. As a gastroenterologist, I did not understand that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure, but I would definitely recommend that if someone needs that much toilet paper, they should get evaluated by one of us. <laughs> right. If you were hoarding and you're going through that, please, it's time to get checked. Um, something else fascinating in this that they speculated something really tied to our field, which now may change our interactions with our critical care docs and our pulmonologists. Did you see that this, these infections may affect the microbiome? And I say the Prevotella bacteria may be contributing to this. And they referred to this as how does this affect the gut lung access? I always talk about the gut brain access. Now these guys were referring to gut lung. Is it possible that by not having a healthy gastrointestinal system, you are then predisposing yourself to possible lung injury. Fascinating thing that they brought up. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point, right? Because you sort of think of immunosuppression as a global or systemic issue, right? You're either immunosuppressed or you aren't. But does maybe poor GI micro or gut microbiome health lead to sort of a cascade of events that ends with you know, susceptibility to lung injury and infection as well? I mean, I have talked when I did Dr. Chang Ron's summit with a bunch of other doctors like Dr. Mark Hyman, we talked about the possibility that having a gastrointestinal tract, which could be more permeable, could allow infections to take place and allow it to get into your, get into your bloodstream and get into and turn on your immune system. Since the get, people with gastrointestinal symptoms tended to have a, a worse outcome, or at least they were sicker, is that possible that the cytokine storm that we talk about starts in the gastrointestinal tract, sets off the inflammatory cascade. So that's the little things that, we, that we're thinking about. I have, do you have anything else to add on this particular article? No, I mean, I think we talked about it a lot and, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I do think, you know, again, the take home points are that 
not that we want to, you know, raise any alarms. We don't want everyone to worry that if they've got a loose stool, that all of a sudden that means that they've got COVID. It's more that we want to raise awareness, you know, both on the side of continuing to stay at home, to encourage good hand hygiene, uh, social distancing, because that's another way for the virus to spread. And, you know, take it seriously, right? Wipe down all the surfaces, make sure you're washing your hands. And if you do end up having some symptoms, touch base, right? Virtual medicine is completely changing the way that you can see your doctors. You don't I have to I was just going to say that, that both you and I are, are really doing a lot of telemedicine. And I love your idea that if I get somebody and I, I'm going to ask those questions, how's your smell? How's this? And then the next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to check some liver tests. To right. make sure, and we can start gathering some of this data to you know ourselves. So if you're, um, I, I think right now, we, initial visit has to be in state. So if you live in the state of Texas, both Dr. Ackerman and I can see you virtually and talk about these different things. Um, I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon, where there can be interstate. Am I wrong on that? Is that correct? Yeah, I know uh, CMS is discussing it uh, in regard specifically to uh, Medicare coverage uh, to try to get more physicians available uh, for their Medicare patients. But I don't, I don't believe it's been passed yet. But currently, you have to be an in-state resident. They have lifted the restrictions about establishing the doctor-patient relationship so it can be done via telemedicine. And you know, the nice thing about it is because it adds so much flexibility, there really is a lot more room for us to enact some of these protocols, right? To say, okay, well, I saw a patient on Monday and they've had these symptoms, and I don't want to raise alarms. I want to see how you're doing. Let's have you go to the lab, which is considered an essential business and is still staying open. You go in, you get your blood drawn, you know, we get it back in a day or two, have the patient follow up again for another 15-minute visit, a quick visit on Wednesday. It's just check in and say, okay, let's review your lab tests. How are you feeling? Have you developed any new symptoms? And then kind of go from there. All right, let's you and I do the same protocol for the anosmia as we see our patients. So if somebody says, you know, I've kind of had some loose stools and stuff like that, let's have the same protocol where we say, I would like, do you have any oranges in your house? Or this is my theory. Cut it right now in front of me, smell it. Does it smell exactly like an orange should smell? Right. Or I was just saying orange. It could be anything that has a distinct odor. Right, that, that, that is universal. So everyone that is knows universal. what it should smell like. Yeah. And so just think about that. Maybe you and I can come up with a little protocol where that'll be part of the physical exam or part of the history. So yeah, that's kind of a great idea. Just another way to, you know, triage the patients and get everyone the excellent care that they need. Yeah, absolutely. So we're done with that study. Since I've been reading so much, I just want to bring up a few other different studies that kind of tie into this. There was a study out of China that showed a case report of a 25 year old woman and this is early on, that her brother was in Wuhan, came back, she, that was her contact, she was hyper aware of everything, and then ended up developing fever, myalgias, everything, went into the hospital, had a very severe case with the CT showing the bilateral infiltrates, doing all of that. And so she had a pretty rough, absolutely classic COVID-19 with the CT exposure and her her progression and am i remembering correctly that she had more mild imaging uh on presentation but it sort of blossomed very quickly correct into, uh, it did significant pulmonary disease it did and what's fascinating is over when they swabbed her it was negative and then somebody was smart enough to do an immediate pcr in her stool it was positive 
and then they swabbed her three more times over a seven-day period, all her throat swabs remained negative. The stool was how they were able to confirm the COVID-19, even though her presentation was classic for it. So that's something that's fascinating to me. It, right. it is one case. It's a case report. Right. And, you know, you have to take it, I don't want to say with uh, skepticism because it's, you know, it's real information, but you sort of have to take it for what it's worth, right? I mean, the value of data is, is typically an aggregate and it is a case study, but it, it proves our point from what we were discussing with these two articles that, you know, fecal oral is, is another route that we have to really be considering. And, uh, you know, we, we do this for other things too. In, in our daily practices, we talk about uh, H. pylori treatments and evaluation. And there are multiple methods for how you can diagnose and find it. And sometimes it makes sense to do it with a breath test, sometimes with a biopsy, sometimes with a stool specimen. And, you know, each test has their limitations. One might not, one might come back negative when the patient actually has the disease. And if you have a high index of suspicion, you repeat it with a different assay and you find that's positive, you can isolate it and treat it. Yeah, 100%. And then another one which is probably going to be beneficial but also scary, and I don't remember this one. I remember the number of people, but somebody was looking at, once they decided to start looking at stool, somebody published a fecal viral shedding five weeks continued after pulmonary viral shedding stopped. So they got better. They didn't have any other viruses in their lungs, and they continued to shed the virus for five weeks fecal now just like you said take that with a grain of salt very small number one person's take on it but something to keep in mind also yeah definitely and i think the biggest thing to take away from that is that when someone hopefully you know successfully overcomes the illness they're not totally out of the woods, right? They still have to make sure that they're practicing social distancing, that they're still adhering to all these recommendations that we discussed earlier, because they might still be a vector for spread to other people. Yeah. And that's, that's why I feel like we need to continue to try and educate as much as possible. This is not going to just go away. It's not like you know, it's that one thing, like, when do we lift these social restrictions? When do we allow these businesses to open up? And are we going to see a resurgence suddenly when that happens? Because all these people that said, well, I socially isolated, I had a mild cold, I don't know if it was that or not, but I'm sure I'm fine. And then ultimately, we need to continue with exactly what you're talking about. I mean, look, everybody should be washing their hands after they go to the restroom. And this is one of the reasons is that you don't need to see stool on anywhere on you to have the pathogen on you meaning right. the virus could be on you which is you don't see the droplets coming at you but yet there's virus coming at you so i would even go one step further with recommendations you know sort of borrowing from what we suggest to patients who develop a, a stool infection that we deal with a lot a pretty significant one in the united states called clostridium difficile or c diff if you have a patient who tests positive or even suspects that they test positive, you tell them to go into contact isolation in their own home. You know, what does that mean? It means that they have to use their own bathroom if possible. So if there are multiple bathrooms in the house, uh, they should really be just using one. Everyone else in the family should be using a separate bathroom and you know, just be super vigilant with wiping things down, even if possible. And now it's a little bit difficult with you know, lack of resources, but using Lysol wipes, bleach wipes, in those situations, hand sanitizer doesn't help. Thankfully here, it seems that COVID is 
responsive to hand sanitizer. So there is that sort of feather in the cap that we can use that also to mitigate spread. But it might be a good idea, you know, patients who have some of these GI symptoms and aren't necessarily displaying the, the typical or classic COVID symptoms maybe need to isolate even a little bit further than just their normal social isolation in order to try to prevent spread. That's true. Um, and one, I'm just going to, this is just planting the seed because I need to read more about this. I've got a bunch of articles I need to get through, but there's new evidence coming out that this Prevotella bacteria may be associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection and Prevotella can cause both severe pneumonia and GI tract issues, which is fascinating to me because one virologist published this really cool article that I, I, I wouldn't even do it justice trying to explain it, but basically that the virus can infect the Prevotella and then it can use the Prevotella to replicate the virus and the Prevotella converts it to DNA and blah, blah, blah. Maybe one of the reasons why we're getting negative tests. It was, that was his theory. So it's a totally moving target. Right. Yeah. I mean, more data gets published every day. It just enhances our ability to fight this. So I hope, um, Everyone enjoyed this. I hope that it wasn't too nerdy, but this is a slightly different gut check project where it's just Dr. Ackerman and I talking about his particular specialty and my specialty. I think that as we go forward, if there are other journal articles like this being published, or actually we both have access to pre-publication, I think that we should do this on a semi-regular basis where we can get in front of this, interpret the data, and then hopefully do some things like we thought about on the fly. We were thinking about how we're going to get every these telemedicine visits that we can maybe have a, a smell congregate of data where people where I can ask them that maybe we, this is the beginning of setting up a possible stent with some sort of antiviral thing. So it's, it's discussions like this that sort of peak the peak, the boundaries of out of necessity breeds invention. Yeah, I think the more the more the discussions happen, the more the gastroenterologists, the pulmonologists, the ear, nose, and throat doctors, the primary care doctors, the emergency physicians, you know, the allied health professionals, you know, everyone has this continued discussion. It it breeds more ideas and more ways that we can be looking at the problem to try to problem solve. Yeah, so I think that what this particular episode should be called is you know COVID. 2.5 or COVID-3, share with your doctor. So if you look at this, I think this is very relevant for healthcare professionals to hear. And a lot of us are just in over our heads right now with trying to keep up with the expenses of a practice because you can't do your procedures. But if you're doing this, what you can do as a service is like and share this with anybody you would like to. But it would be really interesting if you started sharing these with your doctors now that you're doing telemed and things like that. This way we can get some of this out there and get all, get the healthcare community out in front of it as well. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I appreciate you having me on the podcast and, and uh, you know, hopefully as more information comes out, we'll be able to discuss it further and disseminate that information to the masses. Absolutely. All right, everybody stay safe. We're going to try and give any information we can practice all the things that Dr. Ackerman just said. And if you'd like, we both accept telemedicine appointments. More importantly, let's all just get through this together as a country, as a world, as a world, as a world. Stay All right, safe. Take care, everybody.